going to wrap up our little two-part sermon series that we're doing that we're just calling Better Together. And what we've done is we have shifted gears from uh, our previous series where we were talking a lot about the dangers of drifting, and now we're talking about the joys of unity inside the church. And if you weren't able to be here last weekend, um, I would highly encourage you to go and watch that sermon or listen to it because I think it's so foundational to what we're doing here at New Life. I highlighted the point, this truth last week, that we need each other. And that God put inside of each and every one of us this need that only someone else can fill. So I believe that the church is like the very best place in the whole world for that need to get met. It's one of the many reasons for why right here at New Life we love life groups so much. Um, our next life group uh, season, like Abby was saying just a moment ago, kicks off next week. So all of our life groups that are already formed and all the new ones kick off next week. And if you're not in a life group right now, and I hope you've been praying about this and considering it, um, I would just love to just, just encourage you to sign up for the next group link. And your, your sign up, like Abby was saying, is right in your bulletin. You can drop that off at the life group table. That uh, event happens next Sunday evening. And it is our way, and it's, it's done a good job. I mean, it's, it's our way of helping you in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's not anxious, in a way that's not awkward, get plugged into a life group setting. That night right there, for those of you that sign up to come, it is fun. It's an evening full of laughter and great food, and you walk out of there encouraged, and, and I just think that God is involved in that whole process, so I hope that you are considering it and that you will sign up to be a part of a life group if you're not in one already and be a part of our next group link event. I had this thought last week, and I shared it with you, and I'll share it again, that, you know, even Jesus had a small group. You know, we call them disciples, and I'm like, if Jesus had a small group of people that he did life with, I think it would be a good thing for us to follow his example and consider many of the benefits and many of the joys of being a part of one as well. Jesus said this to his small group in John chapter 13, verse 34. You don't have to turn there right now, but it'll be on the screen behind me. This is what Jesus said to a small group. He said, guys, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So he's like saying, hey, I've loved you, and, and you need to love other people just like I have loved you. And then he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As you study about the life of Jesus, we learn that love was a major theme in his ministry. Jesus even said one time, and you might recall this when he was asked about it, he said, you can take all the law and all the prophets. And what he meant by that is take all the rules and all the regulations that people live by under the old covenant. He said, you can take all of that and you can boil it down to these two things. Do you remember what they are? Love God and love your neighbor. Love was just this, this major theme all throughout Jesus' ministry. We're going to love God, and we're going to love other people, and Jesus showed that. It seemed like every page you turn in the Bible. In John chapter 13, he makes this declaration. He says, you know what? Your love for somebody else, the way you show compassion, and the way you care for people like I care for you, you know what that proves? It proves that you are genuinely a disciple of mine. 
So by your love for other people, it just shouts the truth that what you believe, what your faith is, is genuine and it's sincere. And so love one another. That's what Jesus is saying. So when we take what Jesus said and we try to apply it here, we have to ask the question, how do we do that? Because I can stand up here every Sunday and every Saturday, because this message preached is really good, love one another, and everybody would say amen, and then we'd say, but how do we do it? How do we do that? Well, I can tell you one big step forward in that would be by caring for and meeting each other's needs. It would be by putting others in front of ourselves, easier said than done at times, amen. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. These are steps forward in, in loving people the way that Jesus loved us. One of those disciples in Jesus' small group, he would later write this to the church. In 1 John 3, 18, he said, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but how? With actions and truth. He said, let's not pay lip service to people. Let's actually show by our actions what we believe. These are commands that the earliest Christians took very seriously. We looked at this briefly last week. We'll look at it again. Do you remember the very first thing we learned about the, the brand new Christians in the book of Acts? This says that in Acts 2.44 that all the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions of good, they gave to anyone as they had need. And if we take that literally, and I would dare say that we should, then what's it saying? It's saying that all the believers, well, who were all the believers back then? There were about 3,000 of them when this was written. 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost repented of their sins and were baptized into Christ. So all of them, plus anybody that was joining them daily, all of them had everything in common. That literally just means no one saw himself better than the other. We're all in this together. That was that mentality. And they cared deeply for the well-being of each other. They gave to anyone as they had need. And my question is, how in the world did they know they were supposed to do that? Because sometimes that doesn't come naturally, does it? So how did these first 3,000 Christians know that they were supposed to be like this? Because you read the first few chapters of the book of Acts, and there seems from the earliest days of the church, there was this common compassion among them that was unlike anything the world had ever seen before. Why else do you think people were so attracted to it? The, the world hadn't seen anything like this, and I'm wondering, how did they know to do that? Well, it's really kind of simple if you think about it. They were simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. They were listening to Jesus' small group, the disciples, teach them everything that Jesus had already taught them during the last previous three years they, they walked the, the earth with Jesus. So Jesus taught the disciples, you need to love other people as I have loved you, and if you do that, then they'll really know that you're my disciples. And so those disciples, they went and they told the first Christians, you've got to show love and compassion, and that'll be like you're really a genuine believer, that what you believe now is true. And they turned around, and they showed that, and it was so contagious, everybody wanted to be a part of it. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were coming to believe. The world had never seen anything like what they saw out of Jesus and these early Christians. So it's one thing to simply say that we care. It's another thing to actually care. And these first Christians actually cared. 
They sold their possessions. They gave to anyone who had need. They really did love each other. And I have a question. Hypothetical. What would the church be like today if we could recapture even some of that? How would it change things? How would it change your outlook? What would the church be like today if we could just recapture that same level of care as these first 3,000 Christians did? And I'm not talking about an isolated pockets. I'm talking about like the entire New Life family. So caring for the needs of others and loving people unconditionally, well, that was a major theme in Jesus' ministry, and it was a major theme in one of his most famous parables. Did you bring a Bible with you? Could you find your way over to Luke chapter 10? There are Bibles in the pockets, seat pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles if you, didn't ha if you don't have one. Of course, all the scripture will be behind me on the screens, but if you could get your hands on a Bible and find Luke chapter 10, that would be great. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. You find that and then just find the, the big number 10 and you find the 10th chapter. Luke chapter 10. If you grew up in Sunday school as a kid, my guess is this story that we're going to read together was a go-to story for your Sunday school teacher. And this might be as we read it and go, I remember that as a kid. Luke chapter 10, and it goes like this. Look at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. What is an expert in the law? An expert in the law is somebody who was well-versed in all the rules and regulations of the Old Testament covenant, of the law. So it's an expert in that, knew all these rules and regulations of what people were supposed to do and not do frontwards and backwards. One of these guys came to Jesus, and he says this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Friends, I'm going to tell you something, that this is a question every single person on the planet will wrestle with at least one time in their life. Everyone will. What must I do to be saved? That's what he's wrestling with. And Jesus said, well, what, what's, what's written in the law? Because he's an expert, right? Well, what's written there? And so he says... Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Can I tell you what he did? He gave Jesus the equivalent of the Sunday school answer, all right? Because if you were a little boy who spent five minutes in synagogue back in Jesus' day, you would have known that's the Sunday school answer. Well, what's the Bible say? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a correct answer, by the way. And Jesus says, you've answered that right. And then Jesus throws this at him. Do it and live. Don't tell me about it. Do it. Live it. And you will live too. And then the guy who says, the Bible says he wanted to justify himself. He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right. I got it. Do that and live. But, but who exactly is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to express this love my neighbor as myself towards? And I love Jesus' response because it's so typical of Jesus. Because Jesus just doesn't come right out and, and answer the question. He goes, ah, Glad you asked. Let me tell you a story. This is how Jesus operates a lot. If you know his writing, there is his teaching. He said, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you a story. And here's how the story goes. It's known as a parable. And it says a man, he said, let me tell you about a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he took the, put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is money. He took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus says to this expert, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Well, there's only one obvious answer, correct? It's not the answer this expert wanted to give but jesus had backed him into a corner there's no other right answer and he's an expert he's a smart guy he's already got all the answers right and so he answers jesus and he says well it's the one who had mercy on him and then jesus said bingo that's in the greek bingo <laughs> go and do likewise you go be like that guy now, to really appreciate this parable, we have to have a little bit of background on who these people were. Because let's be honest, we live in Bella Vista, Arkansas, or around here, and it's the year 2018. I'm going to guess we didn't grow up in, in this part of the world, and we definitely weren't around 2,000 years ago. Although some of you make me want... No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm totally joking. I'm teasing you. I'm totally teasing you. There's, there's a gap there in our knowledge. Of what's actually going on and if I can help you bridge that gap you're gonna see this parable in a way that this expert of the law would have seen it and it's gonna mean ten times more to you so when we talk about priests and Levites and Samaritans and all of this they're not common terms to us okay? but they were everyday terms to people that Jesus was talking to and so when Jesus says, hey, there was this guy who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, um, and, and he fell in the hands of robbers, I'm going to tell you something right now. Everybody that heard that story would have been like, oh, yeah, I know that road. Because it's a real road. It's about 17 miles long, and it's a treacherous road. And I'm going to guess there was immediate connection when Jesus started to tell this parable, because all of them there were probably like, you know what? I know a guy who was beat up on that road one time. I almost got mugged on that road. I can imagine there's an immediate connection. They would have known it well. Robbers loved this road because it, was, it had a lot of cliffs and caves and rocks. And, and, and robbers would love to just jump out and surprise people and, and, and take their stuff. This road had a nickname way back in Joshua chapter 15 and, and chapter 18. It was nicknamed um, Adamon, which means the pass of blood. Friends, you don't get the name of a road called the Pass of Blood for nothing. If I was driving down the street and, and my GPS said, turn right on the Pass of Blood, I'm going to say, reroute. <laughs> I am not going down the Pass of Blood for obvious reasons. They knew this road very well. So it's a hypothetical, but not so hypothetical. So you have a man beaten, half, to, half dead, left there for the buzzards. Three people come along the road. Two 
just walk on by, and then you have one who decided to help. So who were these guys? The first guy that Jesus says in the story was a priest. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of priest, I think about a guy in a black robe with a turned-around collar and, and is a part of the Catholic Church. That's what we think about as a priest, but that's not exactly the same image that we should get for this guy. The primary job of a priest back in Jesus' day was to officiate the temple sacrifices. So somebody would bring their sacrifice to the temple and they would give it to the priest and the priest would make the sacrifice for them. That was their job. If you remember, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice to God where the Ark of the Covenant was and that was just a once a year thing. This guy, you would assume that this is a man of God. That if anybody was in tune with the way God thinks and what God wants, it would be this guy. But not so. The next guy to come along was a Levite. Well, that's not a very familiar phrase for us today. What is a Levite? Well, he's another kind of clergyman. He's a man of the cloth, if we just want to kind of understand what he does. He's a man of God. His job was to maintain the temple and its services. So you have priests and Levites, highly honored positions in Jesus' day, very well respected. People looked up to them for sure. These men who were on all accounts were men that were right with God, in tune with the Spirit, you might say, or they should have been. Yet neither of these two men of God would help this guy, who was probably a, a fellow Jew, on the road. So when Jesus begins to tell this parable, there is an expectation from this expert of the law that the good guys in the story would be the priest and the Levites. But when the priest isn't, and then the Levite isn't, and then when Jesus says, but here comes a Samaritan, I guarantee you that this expert in the law and anyone else who would have been listening would have been like, where's he going with this? It would have been one of these jaw-dropping moments a, a, a Samaritan? Well, what in the world is a Samaritan? A Samaritan was somebody who was half a Jew and half a Gentile. So in other words, there was a, a, you know, a dad and a mom. One was in God's family. One was outside of God's family. And their children were a mix of the two. And so they were called Samaritans. They were a mixed race. And so you had Jewish people who were like, we are God's children. And if you are not God's child, if you're not, in, if you're not a Jewish and Israelite person... You're outside. And they saw Samaritans as outside of God's blessing, outside of God's promises. And so we see this track record all throughout the Gospels of how Jewish people hated Samaritans and vice versa. Samaritans hated Jewish people. You might recall in John chapter 4, Jesus took a stop at a well and there was this woman there that Jesus started talking to her. She goes, what in the world are you talking to me for? I'm a, do you remember? Samaritan. And it says very clearly there in John 4, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There's some real tension here between these two groups of people. So when Jesus says, then the Samaritan came and helped the guy, it's like, no way. Now what's really interesting is you read about the development through the church of the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts. You have Jewish people who are coming to faith in Christ. And you also have Samaritans who are coming to faith in Christ. And you have Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. And guess what they had to figure out how to do by Acts chapter 15? How to go to church together because they didn't like each other very much. Oh, I think there's a lesson in there somewhere, don't you? It's fascinating. If you've never read it, you need to. The book of Acts will keep you awake. So the Samaritan, and we've come to know this parable as the good Samaritan. Are you familiar? 
the Good Samaritan. But to Jesus' audience, that would not have registered because from their mentality, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. It's like an oxymoron. You don't put those two words together. They would not have thought that. But that was exactly Jesus' point. Those that were supposed to care for the needs of others, those who were supposed to love their neighbor, those who were supposed to show the Lord's compassion and the Lord's kindness to other people, they left that up to somebody else who shouldn't have to care about it. And when I read this parable, this is how I see it. Uh, I see this progression of putting the priest and the Levite, the men of God, first, and the Samaritan last shows a list of priorities. The role of caring for the needs of others first falls to the people of God. That's what I see. And I think this is one of those challenges when he says, and who is my neighbor? Well, there's a mentality of compassion and care, but when the people of God don't do it, there's a real problem. I think one of the greatest challenges for any congregation, any fellowship of believers, is to care for one another like Jesus cared for others. Now you would think, now why would that be so hard? Why is that one of the greatest challenges for any congregation? Because we're just not very good at it, friends, here in America. For whatever reason, we're just not very good at it. And, and, and churches traditionally aren't very good at it as a whole. And I wonder, why is that? I, I can tell you that this is where a lot of churches fall short and where thinking has to adjust and shift. If 100% of the care is the shared responsibility of a handful of elders and a couple pastors, then we will fail every single day. If the care of a congregation is the sole responsibility of a couple of elders and a couple of pastors, we are going to fail miserably. However, if 100% of the care and the compassion and the love for one another is the shared responsibility of the entire New Life family, friends, let me tell you something, we're going to succeed. We're going to succeed in a big way. And what I mean is every single one of you in here that calls New Life home and, and, and says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I am saved by God's grace. I am in God's family. If every single one of us would see that the care for the congregation is squarely in my lap, we will succeed. It's a shared responsibility, not just the job of a few caring individuals. I think one of the biggest blessings that you will ever receive, and some of you will, will relate to this a lot, but one of the biggest blessings that you will ever receive is when fellow Christians rally to you in times of need. Have any of you experienced that? The joy of people coming to your rescue, coming to your aid, coming to you in your darkest hour, being with you in those moments, there is something about that that will never be replaced by anything else. But what if we were all a part of that process? It's one of the main reasons for why during the season of life that we are in as a church family, 
as we have thought about and we've brainstormed and we've considered this need for one another and how we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why this season, life groups right now just seem to make a lot of sense for where we're at today as a church. We'd love to see every single person connected to a life group so that needs don't go unmet, so that hurts don't go uncomforted, and so that joys don't get celebrated alone. It's my belief right now, as where we're at as a church, that the life group environment has the most potential for our church family to show love and compassion for each other. And, and I believe we're supposed to consider and think on these things. How does a church the size of New Life, in case you're wondering right now, about eight to 900 people call New Life their home church. So how does a church that size do it? Well, I, I think life groups is a great step forward in that. God designed us to need each other. I hope you recognize that. He commands us to love one another. I hope you know that. And I believe he organized this thing called the church for us to care for one another. I say it like this. We are just simply better together. We're better at doing our faith together. There's three truths that I'd like to leave you with today uh, before you go home that I hope as a church family we never lose sight of, friends. I hope we never lose sight of these three things, and I'll give them to you fairly quickly. The first one is this. We must care for others. Why? Because the Lord cares for us. The Lord cares for us. I love what Peter said. He said it just like this in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, there's this idea, and I hope you understand it. God cares for us first. He loves us first. There is something about what God sends our way, his love, his kindness, his compassion, that makes us want to turn around and show it to other people. In John chapter 10, Jesus refers to himself as a good shepherd. He tells his disciples, hey, I'm a good shepherd. And let me tell you why I'm a good shepherd. Because I'm not like a hired hand. As your Lord, I'm not like a hired hand. Because he said, there's these hired hands that come in. They're going to run away at the first sign of danger. I'm not going to do that. Here's how he says it in verse 12. He said, the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And, of course, people back then were like, yeah, I get that, I understand. I've seen hired hands run away. And Jesus like, I'm not that way. I'm a good shepherd. And he goes, you know why I'm a good shepherd? He says in a couple of verses later, verse 15, he says, because I will lay down my life for the sheep. I won't run away. I won't run away in their time of need. And you realize what Jesus is saying is that sin is the wolf. And I'm, I'm going to lay my life down, and I'm going to protect you from this danger. And that's exactly what he did, right? He went to the cross. He paid the penalty of sin uh, for us there. Three days later, he rose to life. Why did he do it? Because he cares for us. But I tell you, when we understand that God cares for us and the deep love of that care and what's behind it and what he did to drive it home and what he rescued it from, I'm telling you, there's something that will click on inside it and says, I need to turn around and, and love somebody like that. And when we do, what did Jesus say? That's when they'll know that you're my disciple. When you love like I 
loved you. Friends, let's never lose sight of that. Here's the second thing I hope we never lose sight of as a church family. We must care for others because of this simple truth. Faith and actions are going to be forever linked. James said it like this in, in James chapter 2, verse 14. This verse will be familiar to many of you. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? In other words, what good is it if you just claim this but it doesn't just show up in your life? They can't be separated. So what good is it? And then he says in verse 16, he goes, hypothetical, suppose a brother or sister, now he's not talking about family, he's talking about Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. So suppose a Christian is without clothes and daily food. Suppose they don't have the basic necessities of life. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, this is the biblical way of saying you blow them off. That's what he's saying. So if you've got a brother or sister, you've got a Christian, and they're without the basic needs, and you blow them off, that's what James is saying. You do nothing about it, then what good is it? In the same way, so just like that, blowing somebody off in their time of need, just like that, so is faith all by itself if it's not accompanied by action. It's dead. Friends, we can never lose sight of this fact. Why do we show love? Why do we show compassion? Because there is this deep faith in us that the Lord rescued us and we believe in him. We're going to live with him forever. And we want to take as many people with us to heaven as we can. And that translates into some action step. And Jesus says that action step is to love your neighbor as yourself, to show compassion. It's not nearly as complicated as we make it out to be, showing kindness and love and grace and compassion for people. Faith, what we believe, and how we, they're forever linked. Third thing that we can never lose sight of as a church family is this. We must care because Jesus connected eternity to it. Now, if you think about Matthew chapter 25, Jesus was speaking about the day of judgment. So Jesus returns, rescues the church, there's judgment day, and Jesus describes it. He'll be like a shepherd going through his flock, separating sheep from goats. And then he will say to those on his left, these are the ones that he separates that are destined for hell. He says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil's angels, for I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat, I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink, I was a stranger, you did not invite me in, I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me, I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. In other words, Jesus is saying you could have cared less. And they will say, well, when did that ever happen? And Jesus said, I tell you, whatever you did not do, for the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but they're righteous to eternal life. Friends, we can never lose sight as a church that God cares for us deeply. What we believe and what we do are linked forever. And you know what? There are eternal things connected to it. There has never been a time where we both needed care, needed to give care and receive care more than we do right now. And what an opportunity we have as a church family to be different than 99% of the other churches in this world. That we could show this kind of love and compassion and care as a whole. 